Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I have a lot of exciting stuff to talk about. Um, before we get into our teaching, though, I would like to selfishly plug a very exciting event that I'm pumped about. Um, so I went to this pastor's conference a couple weeks ago, a bunch of lead pastors in our fellowship in Akron, the beautiful location of Akron. And, uh, and uh, we talked about a bunch of different things, had some really great speakers come in and just kind of educate us on some things. And it became very apparent to me that, you know, like, we are a unique church. We, um, we have people who are primarily young. Um, we know that, that some of them are not going to live in this area forever. Um, and so we have a really unique opportunity to minister to people with, I think, a bit of urgency. Like, we, we don't look at you and think, man, this is going to be a great 30 years with you. Like, we're like, maybe two to five is what we get. Anything above that, I'm, I'm pumped, right? Uh, and so what that means is I want to set you up to be the most successful 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80-year-old that you can be. Once you're in your 90s, you're on your own. But um, <laughs> I do. And, and so I, I was, you know, I've been thinking just like about our culture and our church and, and the ways at which the mediums at which we can communicate to people about things we want to teach you and you to have conversations about. And, uh, I thought, and I would just, the, the conference was about these two things, and they've been two things on my heart for a while. And uh, one of our elders, who should not be named, said, there are two things that you just can't get enough of, and they are sex and money. So um, we are having a sexuality, money, and gospel winter retreat in January. And uh, it is something that I just felt like the medium was perfect. Uh, I didn't feel like I wanted to have a 20-week series on money and sex on Sunday. I don't know. I just was like, ah, it doesn't seem like I want to do that. And if you're new, you're like, what's going on? And, and, and then if you have a question, you're going to raise your hand in the middle of this and be like, Trey, I have a question about that. And you're like, we'll talk about that later. So we're like, let's do a retreat. I love retreats. They're my favorite thing in ministry. You get one retreat is worth six months of Sunday. If you went every Sunday, that's how much impact it is to go to one retreat. So what we're doing is we're all in. We're, we're not going to have church on that Sunday. It's Friday night, it's Sunday afternoon, um, and we're just asking you to go. Whether you're single or married, it's, it's not like a marriage sex retreat where you talk about sex. It's sexuality. So we're going to have breakouts for marriage, breakouts for singles. We already have people that are coming to talk, and I'm just really excited about that. So there's two things that I think you need to learn in, in the world is sexuality and money, and those are two things that the world has a lot of different views on and that, honestly, like, you just... Uh, you know, all of you probably have some money, whether it's $5 or $5 million. And how do I steward that and be generous? And So we're going to do that. Um, I will tell you now that the price will be anywhere from like $120 to $200 a person. $200 is on the high end. Uh, we don't have it for sure yet because it depends on how many people go. But if you pre-register, there's a link in your chairs. There's like a million things in the link tree. If you pre-register, you're just telling us, hey, I think I can make it. And you'll get a discount when we actually rule out the final price, which will be in the next week or so, a couple weeks. Um, if you want to pre-register, like you're not putting a deposit down. We're not going to like guilt you in if you say you can't make it. We're just trying to figure out how many people because that affects the living situation. But uh, I was at the lodge yesterday. Brought my family. It had an open house. It is awesome. It's like brand new. Has two amazing hot tubs and a pool. It has a ping pong table. So maybe we won't even talk about anything. We'll just play ping pong the whole time. I don't know. Uh, so the youth pastor inside of me was like so many, so much room for activities. 
so it's going to be great. Uh, I'm so excited. Uh, and it's in Hocking Hills, so it's just a great little getaway in the winter. There will be snow and mountain views and deer and all that good stuff. Great. Okay, on to teaching. Shift your brain. I'd like to start off with a parable um, that is not in the Bible, but it's, it's a parable by Hans, Hans Christian Andersen in 1837. And I think it will give you the perfect setting for what we're going to talk about. Many years ago, there was an emperor who was exceedingly fond of his new clothes, and he spent all of his money being well-dressed. And one day, two swindlers came into town, and they told everybody that they were master weavers, and that their most prized clothing was creating clothes that would become invisible to anyone who was unfit for their job or office, or who was just unusually stupid. And so the, the king thought, this would be a good idea for me. I'd be able to find out who the fools are and who shouldn't be in the right uh, jobs and offices, and so he paid the swindlers a large sum of money to get started on these clothes. Uh, the two swindlers started, they set up looms, and they pretended to weave. There was nothing on the looms, and they pocketed all the silk and all the money in their own bags to head out after this, And so, but they made it look like they were working on these looms far into the night. The, the emperor then decides, I want to go see how the cloth is going, how the things are going, but he was nervous that he went, he was nervous he wouldn't be able to see them, that that would not be good, and so he sent one of his most prized uh, loyal followers, an old minister. And so the old minister goes to the weavers. He walks into the room where the two swindlers were sat working at their empty looms, and he says, heaven help me. He thought as his eyes flew wide open, I can't see anything at all. But he didn't say so. Both the swindlers begged him to be so kind as to come and to approve the excellent pattern, the beautiful colors. They pointed to the empty looms, and the poor old minister stared as hard as he dared. He couldn't see anything because there was nothing to see. Heaven have mercy, he thought. Can it be that I'm a fool? I'd have never guessed it, and it's not a soul must know. Am I unfit to be the minister? It would never do to let on that I can't see the cloth. So he goes back to the king, and he, and he basically talks about, oh, it's beautiful, enchanting colors, such a pattern. You're going to be so delighted. And uh, as, as time goes on, the king decides to send another person. And so he sends another officer, a trustworthy official, and the same thing happened to him. He looks, and he realizes he can't see anything. The swindlers ask him, isn't it a beautiful piece of goods as he displayed them in the imaginary pattern? The man says, I know I'm not stupid, so it must be that I'm unworthy of my good office. That's strange. I mustn't let anyone find out, though. So he praised the material as well, and he told the emperor, it held me spellbound. It was so beautiful. All the town was talking of this cloth. They were excited to see it uh, released on the, the community, and the emperor wanted to finally see it for himself. And so he brought a group of him, including those two guys, to the, the area where they were weaving, and they walk in, and the two officials say, Magnificent, just look, your majesty. What colors, what a design. Uh, they pointed to the empty looms, each supposing that they could see the stuff. And then the emperor, in, in his brain, thought, What's this? I can't see anything. This is terrible. Am I a fool? Am I unfit to be the emperor? What a thing to happen to me, of all people. Oh, And so he says, Oh, it's very pretty. It has my highest approval. Nothing could make him say that there was nothing to see. Everyone else saw no more than another, but they didn't want to say anything. They all joined in with the emperor. Oh, it's very pretty. The next day, they decide to put this outfit on the king for his processional as he walks through the entire village and city. And so as, as he's getting undressed, and the, the swindlers are pretending to put on the clothes. They, they talk about how it's as light as spider web, and it'll practically feel like you have nothing on at all. He even had a train coming down from his, his outfit that no woman had to pick up and carry uh, as they walked throughout the town. They pretended to lift it and hold it up high, and they didn't dare admit they had nothing to hold. So off went the emperor, down the streets, everybody in the town saying, oh, how fine are the emperor's new clothes? Don't they fit him to perfection? 
and see his long train, nobody would confess that he couldn't see anything, for that would prove him either unfit or a fool. Until a small child looks at the king and says, but he hasn't got anything on. After realizing this and everyone looking around at the child's statement, eventually the whole town found itself agreeing, he indeed has nothing on. The, empire, the, the, uh, the emperor shivered, for he suspected that they were right. But he thought, the procession has to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever as his nobleman held high the train that wasn't there at all. It is the parable of the emperor with no clothes. And there's two pieces that I want you to reflect on from that. The first one uh, is that, and the main point of this parable, is that confrontation is essential. Uh, that if you surround yourself with uh, people who never confront you, uh, you will be a fool just like the king and just like everyone around him. And the second thing is the danger of only being around people who will never tell you no, right? Who will never confront you. And if you realize the root of all of those people not telling him no is insecurity, right? Well, heaven forbid I not be qualified to do my job, or heaven forbid that I, I'm, I'm, I'm stupid, right? Until an innocent child just tells it how it is and everyone else is looking stupid. And here the king is naked in front of everyone, but no one's willing to say anything. And I think that leads into our, our talk today. We're, we're, we're going through Matthew 18 in your Bibles, um, and we've been going through it for a few weeks. And the whole chapter is centered around this idea of Jesus' kingdom ethics on relationship, on confrontation, on um, just the status and the way that you see yourself in the community, not only in the kingdom, but just in the world. And uh, we, we started off talking about how the disciples are fighting over, like, who's the greatest, right? If, if Jesus had to pick a right-hand man, who's it going to be? If Jesus dies, who's going to take over? Like, what authority do we have over people? Which is the wrong thing to think when you're following Jesus. And he says, look at this child. Be like this. And they're like, what? And he's like a little child. Like, assume the status of a child, meaning that you're willingly allowing yourself to, to basically lower your influence and your pursuit of being the best. Or when you walk into a room, you don't think you're the most important person there, Right? But the danger of doing that is you're leaving yourself vulnerable. Like if you become a child, we know that children can have terrible things done to them because they're children, right? We, uh, we are for the most part, like agree that like beating up a child is not okay, right? You might get like in a fist fight at a bar and you're like, oh, they were both like men so they could handle it, right? But beating up a child is just like ridiculous, right? Because, but they don't know how to fight back. They're weaker, they're younger, right? And in the same way, Jesus said, he's saying, become like a child, but don't think that I don't know what that means. That you're willingly opening yourself up to be vulnerable. And that's why the next thing he says, after submitting to yourself like a child, is there will be stumbling that will occur with, with children. Meaning that in our community, because he's, he's telling followers of him to become children, that there will be stumbling. People will take advantage of you. People will cause you to stumble based on their own sin. And so he talked about how if you, are in, if you have sin in your life and you think it just affects you, you're totally wrong. That the sin that you are consuming and that you're committing and that you're willingly entering into will only bleed into other people, your relationships, the way that you love others. And, and he's so serious about that harming the little ones that he says if, if you're internally dealing with it, cut it off. Get rid of it. Do whatever you need to do to sever that. Better than you to cut off your arm or gouge your eye out, right, to enter the kingdom with that than to not enter at all and bring others with you. And then he says, even more, you're, when your sin becomes a stumbling block for someone else, I got a millstone, I'm going to throw you in, like better to throw you in the water and drown you than to let you drag other people in with you into what he talks about as hell, which is this symbolic idea that was like this terrible place where child sacrifice was, and you can listen from last week for that. But, so he leads us into that, and then he, and then he kind of gives us, hey, but you're not, you're not, you're not just going to stand here and watch, you have, you have an active role in this. 
You're called to shepherd the people who are struggling, who are wandering off, who are struggling and deconstructing or have theological issues or are sinning willingly and, and, uh, and, and you're realizing it's damaging not only them but the people around them. And so we are called to shepherd, all of us, not just me, shepherd the wanderers in our community. And inevitably then, that means that we get to this passage, which is in verse 15, that there will be confrontation. If you go to reach out to that person, you are going to have to confront them on where they're going or why they're going or whether it was you or the church or them or abuse or, right, you name it, right? It could be anything. And in that, confrontation is the precipice of whether or not they technically, like, come back to the community, right? Now, the problem with this is confrontation is done a lot of times really bad, really wrong. Uh, and the other, the, other, the other issue is that it, it, you know, it takes both sides to really like willingly engage in it, right? If you try to tell somebody something and they don't want to hear it, I mean, it, it's not, there's not a lot that can be done. In marriage, if you're both not willing to humble yourselves, it's a very hard long-term strategy <laughs> to just be like, well, I'm going to be always right, but you can, yeah. It just doesn't work. But I think at the end of this, and, and I ask myself this because, you know, I'm reading this, I'm internalizing this in my, in my own life. What is the reason and goal for confrontation? Like, if we don't have a vision for why Jesus is saying we need to do this, because let's be honest, confrontation's hard. Like, nobody's like, I just wake up and I can't wait to confront people. Unless you get in your car and you have road rage, then you're like, I will drive into anyone that cuts me off. But it's hard. But, but, I, but I would say if there's one takeaway you have today, it's that confrontation is essential. It's essential to our spiritual formation to become more like Jesus. If we want to be more like Jesus, we have to engage in confrontation and also receive confrontation. And the reason why is because the gospel is at stake. It is, the gospel is relationship. The Bible is a story about how God wants to marry you. Did you know that? That's the whole story. The beginning is a marriage and a wedding and, and the symbol of his love for us. And then the end is a party. It's a wedding celebration. It's, it's the head of the, the body, Christ, marrying his church and relationship occurring. And the only way for that to work is two people to make a covenant. And we made our side but keep breaking it. And Jesus says, I will cover that as well. And so he confronts our sin and he forgives our sin, which next week is all about forgiveness, which will be great. He forgives our sin so that right relationship can occur. And if you're not willing to confront, you're not going to be in right relationship, not only with God, but with others. The, the, the start of relationship with Jesus is, hey, I'm wrong. Like, I'm, I'm repenting. I'm a sinner. I'm humbling myself. I'm confronting the reality and the truth around me. And Jesus, you know, and he meets you with forgiveness. But it's the same in our relationships. If we're not willing to confront, we will not see forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus says our ministry is the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling the world to God. And so if we can't even do it in here, nobody's going to want to be a part of that on the outside, right? Like, I, I think that it's very possible that a lot of my life, I will have more relational strain with you people than I do with people outside the church. And that's okay. Jesus knew that. He said, become a little one. It's going to be messy. Let me take care of it. But I'm also going to include you in it. And so that, when we get to this passage and we get to confrontation, and, and I'm not um, unwise to think that you have not had bad experiences with confrontation in general, whether it's like Christian community or just in general, like your parents were terrible at conflict resolution or you had friends that were jerks or whatever. I think about all the different ways it could have went wrong. Maybe you had people who, when they confronted you, you felt like they were manipulating you or gaslighting you or trying to push their agenda on you. Maybe you've had people who built so much resentment and bitterness that when they finally talked about one issue, there was this massive just like flood of other issues and all of a sudden you're blindsided and you're like, six months ago you did this thing and, I can, and you're like, what? I don't even know where I was six months ago. 
Or you have people who just avoid it, or you know people who avoid it, where you're like, I'm just not going to confront anyone. I, I don't want to get involved in it. I don't want to deal with the potential relational strain. I'm just going to try to forget it. Or you've had people who just had no tact. They did it terribly. They weren't humble. The guns blazed, and they had no humility, or they just they couldn't tell the difference between feelings and reality, and, and how to... Some of us don't even like know how to argue, right? You know, except Caroline, because she's going to be a lawyer, so we should ask her how to. How do you present a case, right? And even then, that doesn't always work. I try to present a case, like in the court of law, and Sarah's like, "The court of law is stupid. Don't do that." And and I'm like, "But I have all these like these logical things, you know? It's not that simple." So we've all dealt with this, and I think the last one that's probably most obvious and prevalent today is that you might feel ill-equipped to speak to that person because you have your own struggles. Right? You're like, well, I have my own. Like, I was going to say, like, if I smoke 10 packs a day and I go, hey, you know smoking's bad for you, like, it just feels, ugh. You feel like, well, I should probably deal with my own smoking problem. Right? But that's not true, actually. If you, if you have two people who are struggling and they're brothers and one of them's like, I'm struggling with pornography and he knows his other brother is struggling with pornography, does he just say, well, I'm struggling and he, so I just shouldn't talk to him about it. And let's just both just keep struggling because we don't want to acknowledge the reality that we're both walking down sin. No, right? That's silly. You go and you say, hey, I am very much struggling myself. And I'm doing this because I love you, but, and I'm not going to act like I don't have my own struggles and I want accountability and I want to take care of it. Like I, I know that if, I don't, if we don't cut off our arms here, we're both going to cause either ourselves or others to stumble. Like, and so that's the beauty of confrontation. We can't let our own... Like if I was never allowed to confront you until I was perfect, it would never happen, right? And, 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 and what Jesus is calling us into would never occur. And if it doesn't occur, then we don't have right relationships we have fake relationships. So I think about my own experience, and, and I, I think it's funny. Some people think I, I just wake up and be like, can't wait to confront some people today, right? I have like a quote I got to hit each week. And I will tell you this. I think that I am less resistant to confrontation than most of you. I do not enjoy it. I, it does not get me all excited. I, I, I still have stomach issues and sweat before hard conversations, and I have had a lot in my life. But the reason why I have, I have seen it essential is because it has changed my life. Like, I am here today because of hard conversations. And I am in a marriage with a wife who I love deeply who is very different than me because of confrontation, and I will be a great father because of confrontation. And, and so I understand the, the, the reaping the, the benefits of it, but if it's done poorly, it's, it's just, it feels like more mess. It's, it feels like it's not worth it. But I will tell you that if you don't have confrontation in your life, you are not in a church family, you're at a resort. I mentioned this last week. And here's why I'll argue that. There's three reasons why, if you don't have confrontation, that, it, that would be. Number one is you're perfect, and you don't have any problems. Let's check that one off. That's not a reality. Number two is... You don't have anybody in your life that will actually confront you on anything. Just like the king. You're surrounded by people. You're surrounded by yes men. And they make you feel good, but you're walking around naked. And it's like, dude, is this really what you want? And a child makes fun of you, right? Or number three, probably the most pressing and prevalent that's not reflected on very much, is that you are not letting people in deep enough to be able to confront you. Meaning that you, you give this facade or this shallow level and you don't get to really see what's going on so that they can't confront you, right? Nobody talks about, like, the things they do in the dark. Nobody, like, is in a group, yeah, here's how I filled out my tax form, right? We're like, no, let's just all not talk about that and assume we're all doing it right, right? Like, we all have integrity. No. But if you let people in to your life, then they can confront you. And there's a humility, and there's also a vulnerability, like, becoming like a child. I'm letting people into my life. It could go wrong. 
Jesus knows it can go wrong, right? But you don't let people into your life. And so then no one can confront you on anything other than like, hey, you, you, you chew with your mouth open. Like, oh, thanks, man. Life-changing, right? But if you let people in, if you, if you welcome them into your home, if they see the way that you treat your spouse, if they see the way that the relationships that you have, you get a very good gauge on that person. And you can, you can, the, more that, the more vulnerable you are in that, the more you can be willing to become more like Jesus, the more that you can be aware and be in the right relationship. I tell people when they're dating and they're like, you know, unsure, they're, they're trying to find wisdom and discernment, I say the number one thing that I think is most important other than being of, of faith with you, like that being just good and right, is do they have deep, vulnerable relationships? If they don't have friends who really know them, if they don't have a mentor or someone in their life who's speaking into them, I don't trust them. The reason why I don't trust them is because I don't trust anyone on their own, right? Like, if I am just up here and I have no accountability, like, I wouldn't trust me, right? I am a human. I have blind spots. There's a reason why you have two pilots in a plane, because we just are wired to have a blind spot we don't see, and we'll be like, I didn't see it, right? So we, we welcome community into our lives as a family because we know that it, it, it allows us to truly be known and be in right relationship. So now that we get into verse 15, if you're, if you're there in chapter 18, I want to talk about it because this is like a very practical passage. It, it's very like, here it is. But the problem with that is people just like squeeze it and they just like try to, try to put a stamp on relationships. Like, this is exactly what you do. And, and, and it's, it's, it's not that simple. So verse 15, it says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault when the two of you are alone. If he listens to you, you have regained your brother. Two pieces to pick out here. We just talked about the context is the wonder. It's, so it's, it's a family member. He's using family language, which means that you don't just go out into the world and yell at non-Christians. Like, it's just not your role. I think I, uh, you know, you might have, like, grandparents, older people who are like, the kids these days, you know, and they, like, want everybody to live the same morality and expect everybody to follow the Judeo-Christian morality because that's how they grew up, right? America was, like, a very Christian nation 40 years ago. And, then, and so then they... They, like, judge these people not understanding that they're not a part of the family, you know? And so you treat your family member different than you treat the, the people who aren't. And there's a lot of damage done to people who have never asked for it or are not in the submission of a spiritual community. And so it's like, just, just I hate to say it, just leave them alone. Like, yes, you don't just ignore them, but you don't expect them to be in confrontation because they don't have the same values. The second thing is the, the verbiage in, in my translation is brother, but it could be more gender neutral in your version, but it's... It's a masculine word, but it means brother or sister. It means sibling is the best way to describe it. So when you read that, you say, if my sibling sins. And it's using sibling because siblings are family, but they're also equal footing. So what that means is you have a conflict with someone. You don't like, hey, Trey, yo, Matthew 18, him, go get him. You're the leader. You do it. No. You're a sibling of them. You talk to them. You, you go and you confront something that you deem as sinful or off base or you're worried or you have a concern. It's about your own personal concern going to that person, okay? And uh, we see this in the beginning of the Bible. One of the first, like, massive just uh-ohs, other than the fall, is, is Cain killing Abel out of jealousy because Cain's just lazy and gave God, like, a little bit. And he's like, here you go. And he's like, this ain't good. And he's like, what do you mean? And then he kills Abel because he's jealous, insecure. He kills, he kills Abel and then God goes, goes up to him and he's like, hey, where's Abel? Which is funny because God clearly knows where Abel is. Where's Abel? And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Oh, the sass. Like, good job, Cain. That'll go well. But he's basically saying, what am I, responsible to this guy? The answer is in this, yes. Yes, you are. People don't know this. When you go to a wedding, you're signing up for something. Did you know that? 
you are a witness of their, their vows that now and then you will help hold them accountable for the rest of their marriage. Did you know that? You're like, oh, boy, i got to make some calls. <laughs> you, are, you, are, you, are, you are in the party it's responsible to them. Now, my mentor used to say, you're responsible to them. You're not responsible for them. The difference lies in your identity and the result. Right? So, for instance, if I have a sibling that I think is sinning and I go and confront them, Right? The success of that is me being faithful and confronting them in humility. It's not whether or not they decide to repent or to come back or whatever. And I think parents struggle with this because their kids make bad decisions and then they like take it in their own identity. Like, I'm a failure of a parent. I'm like, maybe you could have done things different, but like, were you responsible to them, not for them? So we are responsible. When you submit to a church family, you are a sibling, you are a part of the body, and if the body is hurt, the rest of the body feels the pain and the burden. If I stub my toe... My entire body, you know, I keel over and I say some choice words. No, I don't because I'm a Christian right now. I don't swear. I say choice words out of my mouth, which is a completely different, like, you know, it's all intertwined. If somebody is struggling, we are to share the burdens of that person. If someone is sinning or is willingly wandering off, it is our, our duty and our call to love them and to shepherd them and potentially confront them. And the modern church has just destroyed this because there's this lie that, like, you go do you and I'll go do me and our, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And that way there won't be any problems. How is that going? I get a lot of, uh, I get a lot of discussions with atheists, agnostics about this idea of, like, truth and morality, right? Absolute truth and different religions and all this type of stuff. And almost every time the argument gets to the point where uh, that phrase is said, right? Well, I'm just going to do me and you do you. And as long as those things don't, harm one another, then we're fine. But what you're saying implicitly in that statement is as long as you do the things that don't affect my ability and my understanding of good and evil, right, of harm and flourishing. So no matter what we say, you do, you do, no, you're not really saying that. You're saying you do you in the confines of what I think is okay. If I said I'm just really passionate about robbing gas stations, are they going to be like, no, you're right, you do you, unless you own a gas station. You're like, no, don't do that, right? And so it's just silly. So I, I'm not here to talk about absolute truth and all that. I don't have enough time. But, but we have to realize that, like, the idea of just letting everybody just do whatever they want. There's a, there's a verse in, this, in the Old Testament that says, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. How did that go? I'll spoil it. Very bad. Idols, child sacrifice, worshiping different gods, multiple marriages, and just a bunch of just bad stuff. We are not to just do what is right in our own eyes. And Jesus is, is, is trying to give us the start of that. Now, the first verse, what's important is, is how we lead with this. Because a lot of times we don't, we skip this verse, we go to the second one, we bring other people into it when we haven't confronted them. And so I'm going to give you two important components of this first one that will literally change the way you see confrontation. The first one is that you lead with humility. You lead with humility. If you're in a, 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 a relationship, humility is the oxygen of that relationship. If you are deprived of it, that relationship will not do well very quickly. Humility is always needing to be the oxygen and, and leading, and don't let insecurity stop you. Okay? Matthew 7, we've talked about this a long time ago, but there's this scripture that says, Don't judge so that you will not be judged, for by the standard that you judge, you will be judged. And the measure you use will be the measure you receive. Anybody who's been like, Yeah, I went in coming hot and prideful, and I got it back, you know? I was like, You're wrong, this and that, and then they came back at me. That's how that goes. And so, Then he says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you fail to see the beam of wood in your own? How can you say to a brother, let me remove the speck from your eye when there is a beam in your own? You hypocrite. 
First, remove the beam from your own eye. And everybody stops reading here. And then you can clearly see to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It doesn't mean you pull out the beam and you're like, whew, totally forgot about that speck. They're saying, no, go, go confront them. Just be willing to acknowledge that your sin might be greater and it might be causing bias in this confrontation. Like people's own insecurities are projected on the confrontation to make themselves feel better or less damaged, right? Like sometimes if we are not doing well, it, we feel good knowing everyone else is also not doing well. It like lowers the playing field because you can either build yourself up to feel equal or you can lower everyone else around you. And this scripture is saying it's not that you don't acknowledge the speck because the speck could be greater and a speck in your eye is terrible. A couple weeks ago, I was going to bed and I, I was moving a pillow and I bumped the headboard and a speck of something went into my eye. 30 minutes, I'm just laying there crying. Because I can't get it out. I'm trying everything. I go in the bathroom. I literally can't sleep. And I'm like, if I don't get this out and I go to bed, I'm going to wake up with just like a like pus and a swollen eye and whatever. The most annoying thing ever, even a speck is a big deal, and it will become a big deal. If I don't get it out, I will have no eye in a couple months, right? It'll become infected. Speck is a big deal. But remove the log first. Lead with humility. The second thing, which is incredibly important, is to learn what sin is and what it isn't. A lot of times we, you know, we have like a cursory understanding of the Bible. We say, well, there's like these lists that Paul gave, like no debauchery and drunkenness. You're like, how drunk is drunkenness? Or, or you're, you know, and you try to justify that. But you're like, okay, malice. Don't be mean to people. Don't rob gas stations. That one's pretty clear, right? But that's just so shallow. There's something much deeper there that a lot of times we focus so much on the external. And I'm not saying like you can't be like, hey, you shouldn't have punched that guy in the face, right? Maybe that was bad. But why did you punch the guy in the face? That's the sin root that needs to be addressed. If you tell someone to not use bad words, that's just like a robotic thing. You're, you tell, hey, like, fix your brain and not cuss. But why are you, why are you, why do you, you know, and I'm not, whatever, cussing, right? It's a trivial thing. But why are, why are you doing that? Like, what is in your heart that's causing you to, whatever, process this sin, then it's okay. And so what happens is, is we have a very small, limited, very contained view of sin, Right? And I was thinking about it. I tried to define it in the best way to understand it in this context. Sin is anything against the wholeness, the shalom, and the holiness of God and his intent of all of this for you and of crea- all creation. Now you're like, oof, that's bigger than just debauchery. It's the violence on his holy relationship with you and his entire kingdom. And sin is also not what you do. It's what you don't do, which is a whole boy. You know, you, you make your sin list bigger. Because you actually could not be doing the right thing out of laziness or insecurity, and that is sin, right? And Jesus, I, I think he's saying, if you don't confront, like, you're, you're not understanding the family dynamic and you're missing our community. You're not, you're not working towards the wholeness of the community becoming in the shalom of what God is hoping for, right? The garden, this picturesque piece of humanity. You're not helping, so you're hurting, so you're sinning. And when we start to understand that, sin becomes a lot more understood. And I'm not here to beat you up and be like, well, i got a lot more to pray about. Maybe that's a good thing, right, because you're just trying to be a Pharisee about it. But I think that what we have, most of us have only learned enough about sin to be a Pharisee but not a disciple of Jesus. The Pharisees knew the, the lists, they knew the intellect, but they cared very little about your heart because their own hearts were just so prideful. They didn't lead with humility. They didn't have any humility. And they, they just they created this weight on people that did not get to the root. Everybody knows that it, like, if I set my phone right now to remind me to say, don't eat that, I'm still going to eat it. You know what I mean? Like if ice cream is in front of me, I'm going to eat it. Even if I set it every 10 minutes. 
why am I going to eat it? Get to that, right? So confrontation, a lot of times, we nitpick things, and we're not really getting to the root because we don't even really know what sin is and isn't, and we don't really understand how that affects our hearts. And so lean, lean into humility, learn what sin is, so that when you come to the table, you're not, you're not just dealing with the exterior. The next verse, if they listen to you, well, in first, end of verse 15, if they listen to you, you've regained a brother, great. But if they don't, if they don't repent, if they don't lack humility, they don't take serious the sin or the issue, then it says, take one or two others with you so that the testimony of two or three witnesses in every matter may be established. Now, this is like, there's a practical sense to this where you're just like, yeah, in the court of law, like, you don't have one person decide. You have a group of people. Unless it's like a menial case, then you have a judge decide, I think. But serious case, you have a jury, right? You have a certain amount of people. But, and, and so we understand the practicality of that. If one person comes to me, this could just be their own bias, right? Like, it's possible. So if somebody comes up to me and they say, Trey, you, you know, you, you really said this hurtful thing or you were flaky or whatever, like, I have to discern, okay, is this really true? How do I humble myself in this moment? If I disagree, if I feel like they're projecting, if I feel like, you know, whatever, right? Let's, let's bring more people into the conversation. What it doesn't mean is you had to be there. A lot of people think like, oh, like, well, the accuser, you know, of this, they had no one else. There's no other witnesses. So we can't include anyone else in the conversation. It's like, no, that's not how that works. It's if you deem this to be sin and it did happen, having other people agree with you on the sin. Does that make sense? And what that does is it allows them to be like, okay, more people than just this person are caring about this issue. It's not just this personal qualm. But what happens a lot of times is we jump to this, meaning like you have an issue with someone and you're like, Trey, go get them, right? And I'm like, no. I, I've, I've been trying to get in the habit. I think I'm good at it, but maybe not. I will say, have you talked to them first? Because if you haven't, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to, I'm not going to forsake this. And here's why. There's two reasons. One is because you need to learn confrontation because you're in a family. Number two is you are putting a burden on me. If somebody comes to me and says, so-and-so said this about me, now I have the burden of trying to discern like that, how I think about that person, right? I'm now getting... A, an idea of a person that I've never even saw face to face about something they said and it will affect the way that I see them. Do you see how that's dangerous? And then when, we, when, when, when they t- tell me to go and then I come over here and then they're like, well, they said this. And I'm like, okay, now I don't like both of you, right? And it's unnecessary. When you bring people into conflict, you have to realize that you are putting a burden on them. And that's okay if it's done correctly. If you've tried and you've, you've tried to reconcile and you're seeking restoration, you've tried to go in humility, but we don't just jump, like you don't just walk into a room with six people and say, hey, you know, like without even talking to them. There's time for a Trayvention, right, when you can sit down with a few people and be like, Trey. But, but if I just was blindsided, like if no one had just come and talked to me, hey, you use this joke and I really don't like it. And then you have six people that now are all like in that business would you want that to happen to you? Would you want a bunch of people talking behind your back and thinking things about you that they have to discern whether or not it's true or their ability to think what they think of you? No, nobody would want that. You want dignity and honor. That's about, we should honor people far more than we realize. And this is the most honoring thing. Now, I understand there's the caveat because people have abused this on abusers, which means like, oh, someone abused you. You need to go confront them on that. I'm like, no, that does not they're not a safe person. Like that, they're not going to enter that in humility. They just abused you, right? So there, I understand there's like, I'm not being, I'm not trying to like promote abusers, like victims to go back to abusers. But, but in reality, like we are trying to humbly both enter into this conversation without bringing the least amount of people. Now, they still don't listen. Verse 17, you tell it to the whole church. If they refuse to listen to the church, treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. 
Uh, you know, this does not mean like, hey, come on up here. You know, hey, so-and-so is unrepentant, and uh, this is their last day here. Everybody say goodbye and just, like, release them, you know. <laughs> Everybody delete them on Facebook, okay? No talking. But it's not excommunication, okay? It's not like, I mean, sure, if it was, like, a really terrible thing, I don't even want to think about that. But if it was a very terrible thing, sure, we'd be like, you got to go find another church. Like, you're harming everyone else around. Like, we have to protect our flock here, and you've just eaten sheep, so you got to go, Right? But it's not like, hey, you're dead to us. You didn't agree with us. But, but what it is saying, and we got to be careful because the opposite is, okay, there's this unresolved sin conflict. Let's just let it be. Let's just not address it. Let's just let it fester. How do you think that'll go? And what people do is they take the phrase Gentile and tax collector and they say, well, Jesus was in relationship with them. So we're never supposed to sever a relationship. Jesus ate dinner with tax collectors, right? He, he hung out with Gentiles. He said, a Gentile man has a greater faith than all of Israel. So, like, does that mean that we, we, just, we, 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 hang, we still are friends? Like, what does that mean? Jesus' tone here is actually referring to the Jewish understanding of the relationship. Jewish people believed that they had holy boundaries, privileges, that, that Gentiles were not allowed to enter into. And I, this is going to sound provocative, but Jesus honors that. If you look, he sits at a table with a, with, a, with a Gentile, with a tax collector. He's kind and loving. He speaks truth in their life. But he doesn't invite them into the circles. He doesn't explain the parables to them. He only explains it to his closest disciples. He doesn't bring Zacchaeus up on the mountain for the transfiguration. He does have boundaries. And the reason why he has boundaries is because he's protecting the circles and the relationships that he's in. You know this. If you had three people in a core group, and one of them was known to slander, to gossip, to, to share all the information, it's going to affect everybody's ability to share in that group. That one person is going to ruin it for everyone. So Jesus doesn't say, like, I'm never going to talk to you again, Zacchaeus. No, he has him over for dinner, and he loves me. He let him, lets him understand the kingdom, but there are boundaries for the sake of the sheep, that need to, and that's what he says when he's like, I'm not going to take any of this. So for us, there might be boundaries that we need to take if someone is truly unrepentant. It's going to cause relational strain. But our default is to always show honor to an image bearer of God. And I think you, that, that helps sum up what that looks like, right? You don't just ignore them forever, but if, there's a, if, if they are causing violence and they are, like I said, stirring up other sheep and things like that, like then, then there, is, there's like, there has to be boundaries. And so Jesus is saying, look, it doesn't mean you just cut them off, but there are, there are, there are things that they have, they have dismissed themselves from because of their willingness to, to be unrepentant. And he lastly, he ends then with uh, verse 18 to 20. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. Again, I tell you the truth. If two of you on earth agree about whatever you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For when two or three are assembled in my name, I am there among them. Now, it's funny. Most people use verse 20 they, referring to, like, uh, community. They're like, oh, like, we're here. The Lord's here, Right? Not necessarily like the Lord is like if the Holy Spirit's inside of you. The Lord doesn't need to just wait for two people to be here to show up, right? We don't wait for seven o'clock when like two people come in and like, all right, God's here. It's a church. What he's talking about is conflict. We, we talked about how there is this sense of validity in testimony, like in, in a group affirming something. Now, what I struggle with, and when you read this passage, maybe you, you do too, is like there was a lot of Christians for a very long time that thought slavery was okay. So, like, where does this passage reconcile Christians going forward as a community and being like, let's own slaves. Let's just not honor people as image of God, right? And so there's tension here, right? And, 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 and I want to be careful how I say this, but Jesus is very aware of that. And the structure that he's giving is allowing humans 
to be a part of this, which causes that. Does that make sense? And so what happens is there's times where I think that God, and I'm saying I think because I'm trying to interpret this lens. This is probably my own perspective here, so I'm being honest. But where Jesus says, hey, when you become children, things are going to happen. So he's automatically saying, like, things will happen. And that doesn't mean everything that happens is good. And that doesn't mean that, that you, you don't submit to that because you're afraid of what might happen. You trust me in the process. But there's evil in the world, right? Um, but I'm ultimately, like, I, I am letting and I am, I am giving authority for people who are on their knees in prayer with others who are reading the scriptures, who are trying to discern the truth, to make spiritual authority decisions. Because otherwise, if he didn't, it would be like one person's like, I prayed and I think the Lord said this. And you're like, okay, but we don't just make that a law because one person said it. We live in a democracy. No, <laughs> but we don't, right? we wouldn't just, one person could, could ruin anything with one word from God, right? I mean, honestly. And so the prophets, we have these continual prophets whose messages are really this, this holistic kind of same message, right? And so they all validate each other. And in church community, I think this is what Jesus is getting at is, if you trust the church, you trust the leaders, you trust the, the structure of the way that we've set it up for me to be accountable, for you to be accountable, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be perfect, but, but it's still our call on earth is to enter into that. And, and then if, if there is messiness, that we handle it well. And that's the main problem. Messiness happens. People are either surprised it happened or it's not handled well. And so I just want to encourage you guys, that, like that is something that you get to assume responsibility of, Right? We are not a church of 20,000, okay? I don't drive a Bugatti, okay? You can come to my house. Most of you have my personal phone number. Like, if you, if you don't trust the leadership or, you do, or you're, you're trying to figure it out, it won't take you very long. We're not a very big church. I'm not really hiding much, okay? I have a shed, but it's not that big, okay? <laughs> so just, just know that when, I, like, when I'm submitting to being a child in this church community like Jesus commands of me, what community am I submitting to? Do I trust the people? Are they, do they have my heart and interest? And this leads to the end, which is, the, like I said, the oxygen, is humility. Confrontation must be grounded in the person of Jesus in humility because there's a thousand denominations. And I think we're all wrong. I mean, I do. I, I think if I'm up here and I'm like, I have my theology airtight and I am right, I think that I'm, I'm being a bit prideful. Now, I'm not saying, I think I have some of the main things, the main things, I think, right? I'm confident in that. But if I walk up here and be like, our denomination and the way that we take it, it's all right. And everyone else is wrong. I just think you're going to get to heaven and you're just going to, God's going to be like, really? That was your play? All, all your life was to complain about other people and how they have it wrong. No, no, no. It's entering in humility. It's confronting things when you feel this, the presence and the community wanting to confront it. But just don't, it's humility. It's, it's reading. And so this looks like, to close, I'll invite Lizzie up as I'm talking here. This looks like, because I was thinking about what does humility look like in this atmosphere of confrontation, it looks like humbly searching the scriptures to know God and hear him speaking. Humbly consecrating time and thoughts and fears and doubts to let the spirit speak to your heart without bias, right? Meaning if I'm going to have a hard conversation, am I bringing any of myself into this? And if so, what is it? And how can I, how can I communicate that? How can I free myself from that? Am I feeling insecure and I'm projecting? We humbly listen to others with different points of view and theology, meaning there could be something that they know that I don't, Right? We humbly then confront, and this is, the, this is what it looks like. We humbly confront our fellow family members when we are convicted of sin that we believe will either destroy them or those around them, and we do it acknowledging that we may have our own sin that we have to repent of as well. And I think that is the beauty of this passage, is, is that 
the point of confrontation is not to be a cult and make everybody believe what you believe, right? It's not like, well, you better get your act together or there's the door, right? It is this beautiful stepping into the mess that is the church that God wanted to be that way, and it is being faithful in it and being a component of making it a peaceful, whole place for people to see. The way that we handle conflict with each other will only affect in powerful, exponential ways the people on the outside, your families, your marriages, your relationships. Like, if there's one thing that makes this church good, it'd be right relationships with people. You can come in here, people don't talk crap about you, and even if they do, you, you, you confront them, right? So for some of you, um, as we transition to a time of like formation, of just processing this practically in our own life, right? Uh, I want to invite you to reflect on, on this, and, and I think there's probably two things that you might need to pray about and just pray for the Spirit's prompting here. Is one is, do you need to clear your schedule this afternoon and have a conversation? I'm laughing, but I'm also kind of serious. Meaning, like, have you been putting off something that you, need to, that you need to confront with someone or in your heart? Have you been hiding something? Have you been letting someone go because you're just afraid of the conversation that you need to talk, have a conversation about? The second thing is, have you had a conversation where you're like, man, I did not handle that with humility? I need to go back and I need to seek forgiveness. I need to restore this relationship because of how I confronted them. And it's hard, but think about the fruit of those things. I trust people when they confront me. I don't trust people when they don't. Because I, like, how do I know if, if, I'm, if I offend someone, if they never tell me, right? And anybody else, if you have something stuck in your teeth and you're at a party for three hours and you look in the mirror at the end and it's still in your teeth, I don't trust any of you. I'm going to go find new friends. Just tell me. It'll be better for everyone. You're not even going to be able to focus on anything I say for the next three hours because you're like, man, he's got a bean skin stuck in his tooth. <laughs> I don't know what it is with bean, black bean skins. They're always in there. But it's just tell me. That's how we build relationship. I can know what you're thinking and feeling in our relationship. And we're insecure and we don't handle it perfectly. And that's okay. We're family. We fight. And we take a few days off. And then we're like, we love you. You're family. Let's do better. Let's, let's honor Jesus in this. So... Um, the other things you can do, we have the Lord's Supper. We always offer that up here, and that's just the tangible reality of Jesus confronting your sin and, and taking it upon you with his sacrifice. That's, just, that's literally just the gospel tangibly seen. And then uh, giving is always an act of worship and obedience and faith, and that's the thing that we, if we follow Jesus, we partake in. Uh, and then, like I said, there's, there's reflection time, and then people in the back, we'd love to pray for you. I think about, um, uh, I didn't think about this last service, but the, when you take the cup, there's a scripture that kind of talks about if you have wrong, if you have, if you don't have right relationships, that you shouldn't take the cup, that, that you actually need to go and restore those relationships because the heart that you have toward those people affected the heart that you can have towards the Lord and relationship with him. So maybe some of you need to like talk to someone right now in this room, say you're sorry. Maybe some of you need to go ask for prayer and be like, I am wrestling with this and I, I, need, I need to find a way through this before you take that. So I want to encourage you in this time to do that and then we'll sing one more song and then we will listen to uh, Hannah Close. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.